have you, uh, have you ever known someone to say about the Bible, you know, Paul and Moses, they're just a little bit too much for me. Why, why can't we just read the words of Jesus and just do what he says? Why can't we just look at the red letters of our Bible, if you happen to have one of those editions, and just read those, the words of Jesus, and just do what they say? First of all, 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God and all of it is profitable for reproof and for teaching and training in righteousness and for correcting all Scripture, including Paul and, and Moses. Also, the words of Jesus in the Gospels. But also, have you, have you ever, for the one who says, Paul and Moses are just, uh, they're a bit too much for me. The prophets, man, Amos, Amos just can't, uh, man, I can't, I can't get excited about Amos at all. But for the one who says that, have you ever read the words of Jesus? The brother is harsh. Our Lord, our Lord can be downright, not mean, but it can feel like that to sinful hearts. Okay. Jesus has a way with words better than Muhammad Ali. I mean, if Muhammad Ali was, was better than anything besides boxing, it would be as a rhetorician. I mean, he just had a way with words. Uh, Jesus would, would go. He wouldn't even last. Muhammad Ali wouldn't even last 12 rhetorical rounds with Jesus. Jesus would just cut him off at the knees, you know, 12 seconds into the first. Okay, as we... Finish Matthew chapter 12 today, beginning in Matthew 12, beginning in verse 38. We're going to see again um, that Jesus has some really hard words for the people who continue to disbelieve him. There are also, at the end of our passage, some encouraging words for those who, who do believe him truly. But, but let us see today that Jesus does not hold back when it comes to confronting those who are still sinfully <clears throat> rejecting him. And still in their sin, disbelieving him. And bear in mind, as we've seen the last few weeks, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. We like to demonize the Pharisees often. We like to to assume, well, I'm not like that person. I'm not like a Pharisee. Well, who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the religious people. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were experts in the word, or so they thought. The Pharisees are people who think they've got it all together and are doing everything that that God has called them to do. That's who they think they are. And Jesus has hard words for them. Who are we today? We are the church. We are those who are presumably, hopefully, Lord willingly, trusting Jesus for salvation and following him faithfully. Yet, we ought to see, like the Pharisees, We all can, in the sinfulness of our hearts, run the risk of actually, while thinking we are on God's side and working for Christ, miss the point altogether. So as we read Jesus' words to the Pharisees, let's not just assume that these are words for people that are not like us. The words that Jesus says today are for people who, who in many ways, are like us. And and we need to, to see God's word, the words of our Lord and the gospel of Matthew here, and and hold them up as mirrors to our own soul. 
this morning. Okay, So there are hard words in this passage, and I'm going to do my best to be faithful to what the Lord has said and not to say anything other than what he has already said. Um, But pray for me this morning that I will do it graciously and lovingly. Remind ourselves of of Psalm chapter 19, verses uh, just 7 through 11. Just as as we remember, even the hard words of Scripture are for us. This is what the psalmist says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, even the hard parts. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Even before we begin, let's pray this morning. Our Father, as, as we open your word and, and hear from the gospel of Matthew and, and read and look at the words of our Lord Jesus, God, let us not come away from the, the text this morning unaffected. Let us not come away unchallenged or unconvicted. God, there are things I know in this text that will be hard for some of us to hear, but, but knowing what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, that your law gives life, your word revives the soul. God, help us to, to desire life and for our souls to be revived and to have joy in our salvation, even as we listen to and apply, especially the hard parts of Scripture, to our own lives. God, use your word this morning as a mirror to our soul. That we might in truth see ourselves and who and what we really are and how our hearts are truly oriented. That God, we might not leave here today disbelieving Jesus or misbelieving Jesus, but that we would be believing him in truth and trusting him with all that we have and with all that we are. God, you be glorified. Lord Jesus, your name be magnified. Even as we read your words this morning, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, <clears throat> give us ears to hear, and give us hearts not of stone, but, but of flesh that, that beat with your heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Even as we closed uh, last week, Uh, we saw Jesus in a conversation with the Pharisees talking with them about how they would be judged uh, on the day of judgment for the words that they spoke, for every word that they had spoken. Why? Because words are the outflow of the heart. So in judgment, all people are judged, uh, not specifically by the words they speak, but by the words they speak because of what their words indicate about the nature of their heart, about the orientation of their heart. A person whose heart is for God Their their speech will be filled with things that are a blessing to God and a blessing to others. Speech that is filled with love and with grace, compassion in the gospel. A person whose heart is far from God will not, their speech will not be filled with those things. And so just bear that in mind, that the fruit of our lives is an indicator as to the the nature of our, our heart. And let us look today at the Messiah and the hearts of men in Matthew 12, verses 1 through 
verses 38 through 50. I'm going to take this in smaller chunks today, so keep your Bibles open. Uh, we're going to work through a few verses at a time as we go through. Let's look first at Matthew 12, verses 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In these verses, I think that what we see is a picture of wrong-hearted people. Wrong-hearted people who wrongly ask for proof. Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, right? These religious leaders in Israel. He calls them as they ask for a sign. They ask for Jesus to do some miraculous sign to prove that he really is a prophet of God. And Jesus, in response, calls them an evil and an adulterous generation. That is to say, they are wicked and sinful and unfaithful to God. That's what Jesus is saying about these religious leaders, religious rulers in Israel. They ask for a miraculous sign for Jesus to prove he's the Messiah, to prove he's truly a prophet. But instead, Jesus points out that what they ask for are unnecessary signs. They're asking for signs that are not needed. Already in Matthew, we've seen the Pharisees have have witnessed already Jesus healing a paralyzed man in Matthew chapter 9. You remember that? That's the man whose friends bring him into the crowded house. And certainly at least they had heard of his healing of this demon-possessed man who was both made blind and unable to speak in Matthew 12, verse 22, which we saw just last week. And it's all but certain at this point that news of all of Jesus' other healings and his teaching and his wonders and his miracles, the things he's doing, had already begun to circulate. They're well aware of the signs that Jesus has already provided in his ministry. And yet they ask for another. It's unnecessary. They don't need more. All the signs that are necessary to show that he is who he says he is and and to indicate his nature have already been done. But we see that they ask for these signs because of the fact that they have already ignored the obvious evidence. They ask for unnecessary signs because they ignore obvious evidence. The most obvious evidence to this point that Jesus is who he says he is, is the very scripture, the very law, the Old Testament That the Pharisees had so adored and esteemed. Several times already in the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in Matthew chapter 1, and we uh, saw even just a couple of weeks ago in Matthew 12, verses 18 through 21, that Jesus is doing everything that he's doing to fulfill the Old Testament. Now, Matthew's favorite Old Testament prophet is Isaiah. He quotes him more more than any other. But all this to show that Matthew is reading the signs. He's seeing the evidence that, that, will, uh, that will be clearly evident uh, at the time of the coming of the Messiah. And Matthew sees the things that Jesus is doing and has done. And he's looking back in the scriptures, in the Hebrew uh, Bible. And he's saying, this is about Jesus. This here in Isaiah, this is about Jesus. All the way along. Matthew is not ignoring the evidence. However, uh, the Pharisees are. 
all the evidence that they need is, is not bound up in the miracles and in the healings and in the raisings from the dead that Jesus does. All the evidence that the Pharisees really need to know that Jesus is the Messiah is the scriptures that they've already had. The scriptures that they are experts in. However, Jesus himself makes the point that for many, not even the scriptures will be enough. In Luke chapter 16, Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a, a story about a rich man uh, and a poor man named Lazarus. The, the poor man Lazarus was a leper who laid at the gates of the rich man day by day. And in the, manner of, in the course of time, the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus, both died. And the rich man went to Hades, went to hell. And the poor man went to heaven, to the bosom of Abraham, Jesus says. And there, with the rich man in Hades, looking across this great chasm into heaven, uh, sees Abraham, Father Abraham. He says, Father Abraham, uh, uh, please dip your finger in some water and just touch my tongue with it because the, this place of such torment is just unbearable for me. Abraham says, sorry, brother, can't do it. And then the rich man looks at Abraham and says, well, at least send Lazarus back. This dead man, the man who just died, who used to lay at my gates every day, at least send him back because I've got four brothers at home. Right, who are all destined for the same fate as me if they don't see the error of their ways, repent of their sins, and turn to God for forgiveness. And what is, in Jesus' story, what is Abraham's response to the rich man in Hades? He says, If they, if your brothers, do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. All the evidence that the Pharisees need, friends, all the evidence that we need to demonstrate to us, to prove to us that Jesus is who he says he was, is right here in these 66 books that we call the Bible. Yet, if you won't listen to Moses and the prophets, you won't even listen if someone should rise from the dead. Now, that's a telling statement. Because who's going to rise from the dead at the end of the Gospels, right? Jesus Jesus, that's precisely the sign that Jesus will offer to the Pharisees. They ask for a sign. They say, give us a sign. He says, I'll give you a sign, but the only one I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. Jonah was was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, who was as good as dead and was spat back up on dry land. That's the sign I'll give you. Only I won't be in the belly of a great fish. I'll be in the heart of the earth itself. I won't be as good as dead. I will be dead and I will be raised from the dead. This here in verse 40 is the first explicit reference to Jesus' resurrection in Matthew. And we do well to note it and to take uh, notice of it. But because the Pharisees have not believed scripture and they've not believed the signs that Jesus has performed, they will, Jesus Jesus says, be responsible for their disbelief. They will be responsible for their disbelief. He reminds here in uh, verses 40 and following. Jesus reminds the Pharisees and the scribes of the sign of Jonah and what happened as a result. You all remember Jonah. And if you don't, uh, take five minutes this afternoon and read the book of Jonah. It's four chapters. It's really short, right? Jonah called by God to preach to Nineveh, that wicked city, right? That sinful city to preach against it. And what does Jonah do? He runs the other direction as far away from Nineveh as he can get. He gets on a boat, headed for Tarshish. Uh, God sends a great storm upon the sea. And Jonah says to all the people on the boat, hey, this is my fault. Just throw me overboard and you'll be fine. And, uh, and so in, in the course of time, the men throw him overboard and, uh, and the sea calms, right? God's wrath is quenched because his, his prophet is doing uh, well, trying to do the right thing. And while he's in the ocean, right, or in the sea, 
Uh, falling to the sinking to the depths of the of the sea, a great fish swallows him, and his life is preserved inside of this fish for three days and for three nights. Um, but if that fish at the end of three days, three nights, does not vomit Jonah back up on the dry land, Jonah will die. Okay, so it is a miracle that he is kept alive and that he um, is vomited back up on dry land. But then Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches to Nineveh, and his 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 preaching is simple. He says, "Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be destroyed." And what happens? Wicked, sinful, awful Nineveh repents. They mourn their sin and they repent. They see the sign of Jonah and they turn from their sin. And God relents from the disaster that he's going to bring upon them. Jesus reminds the Pharisees of that sign. But he also reminds them of something else from the Old Testament. He reminds them from uh, 1 Kings chapter 10 of the event where the Queen of Sheba, which is modern day Yemen, during the reign of King Solomon, the son of King David, the Queen of Sheba had heard of Solomon's wisdom and his wealth and all of the, the, the just the grandeur of his kingdom. And so she traveled to, uh, to Israel, to Jerusalem, to see King Solomon. And she spent several days asking him questions. And he never gave an answer that fell short or fell flat. And she was amazed at the wisdom that God had given him and amazed at the wealth that God had given to Solomon. And she, in turn, and you can read this in 1 Kings chapter 10, blesses the Lord for the way that God has blessed Solomon and the kingdom of Israel. Jesus goes on to say, you know Jonah, you know Solomon, something better than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. In chapter 12, verse 6, just a few short weeks ago, we saw Jesus even say something greater than the temple is here. The signs of Jonah and of Solomon And the testimony of the priests in the temple throughout Israel all ultimately pointed to God's grace and his goodness and his provision for his people that they might be a blessing to the nations. And in every one of these cases, through the temple, through Jonah, through Solomon, we see unbelievers from around the world seeing the signs that God is doing in these individuals and through these people and glorifying God for what has been done. But in the final judgment, Jesus says the Pharisees will be condemned by those who saw the lesser signs of Jonah. They'll be condemned by the Ninevites. They'll be condemned by the Queen of Sheba. Because those people who saw the signs that God did, even the lesser signs that were done through Jonah and Solomon, lesser than the signs that Jesus himself would perform, those people who saw those signs turned and repented and blessed God. But the Pharisees have seen greater signs. And have not repented. They haven't seen just any prophet or any king or any priest. They have been witnesses to the better prophet, the better priest, the perfect king. And yet they have continued to walk in their unbelief, in their disbelief. Sounds a whole lot. What Jesus is saying here sounds a whole lot like what he's already said in Matthew eleven twenty through 24, where there he pronounces woe upon the three cities where he has done much of his ministry, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. And he says, woe to you cities. Right? Because if the works that had been done in you, if the evidence of, of the Messiah among you had been done in Tyre and in Sidon and in Sodom of all places, those cities would have repented. But you all have seen the signs and you haven't repented. And the day of judgment is going to be a hard day for you. Friends, as we look at what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here, to these misbelieving, disbelieving Pharisees, We do well not to judge the Pharisees for their disbelief, but instead to ask God to reveal to us the true orientation of our hearts. 
It is tempting to look at the Pharisees and say, well, thank God I'm not like those guys. It's another thing altogether to say, dear God, I pray that I'm not like those guys. And that's what this text is calling us to do today. The words of Jesus are calling us today to to see the nature, the true nature and true orientation of our hearts. Are we for Christ or are we against him? And friend, don't evaluate your heart this morning by your own assumptions about what your heart is like. You are not the best authority on the nature of your heart. You don't believe me? That's fine. Listen to what the Lord says. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. The answer is nobody. (laughs) Jeremiah 17, 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Church, there's no one who knows our hearts like God knows our hearts. And there's no one who can reveal to us the true nature and orientation of our hearts, whether we are for Christ or against him, other than God. So, friend, this morning, pray earnestly that God would show you the orientation of your heart. Are you wrong-hearted like the Pharisees? Or are you trusting Jesus and him alone? Now, as God reveals to you the nature of your heart, he'll, he'll re- reveal to you, I think, one of uh, four different statuses, okay? And we're playing uh, semantics here a little bit, but just play the game with me, okay? God may show you this morning that you are a believer, that you are, that he will affirm and confirm in your heart that you are trusting Jesus as Savior, that Jesus is Lord of your life, and there's nothing else and no one else that you are looking to for salvation or to be right with God this morning. And if that's what God reveals to you, praise God. Praise God. God may also reveal to you this morning, and my guess is, if you fall into this category, you already know that you're in this category. He may show to you that you are an unbeliever today. That you are one who does not trust Christ yet, but that you are searching. That you are open, are looking for evidence of a God, and and that because you know if there is a God, that what you do with him is very important. And so you are not yet a believer in Jesus, but you are seeking the truth of God. If God reveals that to you today, hear this this morning. There there is a God. He's revealed to us in Scripture, in the Bible. His Son is Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who has died on the cross, that you might be forgiven of your sins and raised from the dead so that you can be right with God. God has done this not because you've earned it, but he's done it because he loves us and he wants each and every one of us to repent of our sins, to turn from our sins, and to know Christ and to be in a right relationship with him. Friend, if you're an unbeliever today, I pray that God would be working in your heart to bring you into the position of being a believer, of trusting Jesus, of being saved, of knowing him. God may show to you this morning that you're not a believer or an unbeliever, but a disbeliever. Right, this is a disbeliever is one who has seen the signs and who flatly rejects them, right? Uh, a, belie- a disbeliever is one who is aware of the fact that there could be a God, right? And, and has shunned that notion with all that is in them. You may be one who is, who is intensely and intentionally opposed to God and, and any, uh, anything like him or about him, Okay. You may find yourself in the camp of like a Richard Dawkins or a Sam Harris, a, a Christopher Hitchens, a disbeliever. But maybe, and this is scary, maybe God will show you this morning that you're a misbeliever. A misbeliever. That you've read scripture, that you know scripture, and yet somehow you've missed the gospel in it. 
Maybe somehow you've missed the, the truth of who Jesus is this morning. And friends, that is a scary position to be in because that is the position that these Pharisees are in. They knew scripture. They had it memorized. They could teach it with authority and convincingly. There was not a question about scripture that they could not answer. And yet what happens? They missed the Messiah altogether. And their judgment will be worse than those of, of Sodom and Tyre and Sidon. Because they've missed it. Because they knew it and they saw the signs and they missed it. Friend, if God reveals to you this morning that you're a misbeliever, that you've been trusting in something or someone else or in things that you do to save you in conjunction with Jesus, if your hope for salvation is in something other than or, or Jesus plus something, friends, you're misbelieving and misunderstanding the gospel. And a misunderstanding of the gospel is to miss the gospel entirely. You will not be able to stand before a holy God and say, oh, I didn't know that that's what that meant. There won't be time on that day. If God reveals to you today that you're a misbeliever, uh, repent of that sin and turn to Christ and Christ alone this morning. Wrong-hearted people wrongly ask for proof. But we also see a second category of people in verses 43 through 45. Jesus goes on to say, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty and swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Here in 43 through 45, we see that hard-hearted people are headed for a hellish future. Hard-hearted people are headed for a hellish future. You're saying, Pastor Stephen, you just like that because it's so alliterative. You like all those H's all in a row. That's partly true, but also it's because what the text is telling us. Hard-hearted people are headed for a hellish future. Look, these verses, 43 through 45, are not primarily about demon possession, even though Jesus is talking about demon possession. These verses are really about unrepentance. We are told here from Jesus about what seems to be the normal practice of demons when they are cast out of somebody. And it's an appropriate word picture that he, get, that he gives because just earlier in this interaction, he's cast a demon out of a guy. So he goes back to that ready image. When a demon goes out of a person, Jesus says it passes around waterless places. That is places that are devoid of the blessing and the presence of God, looking for another soul to possess. And finding no other soul to possess or none that it likes very much, it returns to its first home. The previous person it was just cast out of. Now that person who, is, who has received relief and respite from having this demon cast out of them goes on to get his life in order to, to clean his house, so to speak. But what he doesn't do is to replace the previous occupant of his heart and mind with another better one. It's like, whew, glad that's empty. And so when the demon returns to the place that it's comfortable with, it finds its home empty and swept and cleaned up, and he takes up residence there again. And seeing all of the space that is now available, he decides to throw a block party. And he invites some roommates to come and live with him, seven more that are worse than himself. In the last statement of, of verse 45, Jesus says, So also will it be with this evil generation. It tells us that this passage about demon possession is really about the scribes and the Pharisees. That evil and adulterous generation who wrongly seeks a sign will be like this man who was possessed by demons. 
Friends, hard-hearted persons like the scribes and the Pharisees are headed for a hellish future because they deny their need for repentance. Though the scribes and the Pharisees have scripture and know it, they are still in ongoing opposition to Jesus. They're trying to kill the man. The very one of whom the scriptures that they love so much speaks about. And even though they see the signs that that he performs, they have scripture, they have evidence as to who he is, they reject him and they ask for more and for better proof. But we know already that they're not prepared to even believe that. They're playing games with Jesus. Now, the right response, friends, to seeing the Messiah for who he is, is to turn from sin, to repent, and to run to Christ for salvation and for safety. But the Pharisees deny that they have committed any sins in the things that they have accused Jesus of and in their disbelief. And instead, they condemn Jesus for sinning. They call him the blasphemer. They call him the servant of Satan. These Pharisees are, even as we saw last week, themselves guilty of denying and blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit of God to show non-believers, unbelievers of their sin and their need for a savior. And they're experiencing and witnessing the work of the Holy Spirit and saying, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. They deny their need for repentance. And, and like the man who has a demon cast out but doesn't, doesn't fill his heart and soul with another better occupant. So they continue to walk in unrepentance, in rejection of, of Christ. Not receiving and believing the truth. And as a result, their future is grim. Their future is grim. Even as the man in the story about these demons ends up in a hellishly worse place than, where he, than when he was possessed beforehand... Jesus says also that the woeful state of the possessed man will be like that of the present evil generation. These scribes and Pharisees who have seen the signs, who who have talked with the Messiah, who have seen what Jesus himself does, and yet have not turned from their sins. On the day of judgment, their separation from God will be all the more worse than their present separation. Because in that day, on the day of judgment, their separation will be final and eternal. There's a reason Jesus uses the image of demon possession to talk about the final state of unrepentant people. Because it's hellish, it's grim, it's torturous, it's painful. And that is what each and every one of us choose when we reject Christ. That's what we choose. Because that's what we deserve. In our sin, we have rebelled against God. We have disobeyed God. We have said, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. You don't know better for me than I know for myself. I got this, God. You mind your own business. And in rejecting God, we reject all of his blessings. We reject the life that he gives, the joy that he has to offer, the love that he extends to us. We reject all of that. We choose hell over God every time that we sin. And yet, we're blind to it. Until the Holy Spirit shows us that. And that's what Jesus is trying to show the Pharisees. He's trying to see see how bad of a state you're in. See it. See where you're headed. It is hell. This is a good passage to remind us of the reality of a physical and eternal place called hell. Where all people will spend if they do not trust Christ for salvation. Friends, I'm I'm not going to blow smoke at you here today and make you feel like God is going to just at the last day decide, ah, never mind, I didn't mean all that stuff. I'll save everybody. If that's the case, God is a liar in his word. And there is no hell to fear. And there is no need for Jesus. And God is just playing games by sending his son to die for us. 
church, Scripture says that God can be trusted, that he is trustworthy, that he is perfectly good and just and gracious and merciful. He must judge sin, but he, but he desires to judge sin, our sin, in his own son. And he does that on the cross. Friends, don't look at Christ on the cross. Don't see him risen from the grave and think that there's some other way to be made right with God because there isn't. This morning, church, beware the danger of continually rejecting the truth about Jesus. Friend, if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, you're here because you're curious about God and you want to know more. Just beware of the fact that if you continually live in, in, in a state that you are rejecting the truth of who God is and your need for Jesus, you will end up in a hellish place. I think one of the greatest pictures of a hard-hearted person in all of Scripture is Pharaoh in Exodus. It's no secret that Exodus is my favorite book of the Bible. And, and Pharaoh is a compelling character. Right? Pharaoh, who the king of Egypt, who has enslaved God's people, Israel, the Hebrews... Uh, is confronted by Moses, God's servant, right? Who God has chosen to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And several times Moses and his brother Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, right? The Lord says, let my people go. And time after time, over the course of many plagues, Pharaoh says, no, I won't. Until finally, when his own son is dead in his house at the hand of the, the angel of death that God sends... Pharaoh decides to let them go. But what do we see throughout all of that, that plague narrative, the, the plague cycles? Pharaoh hardening his heart. God hardening his heart. And Pharaoh hardening his heart. And God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And over, this, over the course of time, we see that Pharaoh is absolutely sure and, and, and certain of the fact that he is opposed to God. He and the Lord are enemies. Pharaoh considers himself a god, and the Egyptians would have considered him a god incarnate. And Pharaoh is saying, no god is going to challenge my authority. And so the Lord wages war with Pharaoh and beats the snot out of him. But Pharaoh is, is unwilling to relent. Rather than seeing the power of the Lord and the authority of God over all things, he hardens his heart the opposite direction. So much so that even after he lets the people of Israel go, by the time they make it to the Red Sea, he's changed his mind again, and he's going after them to stop him one more time. Pharaoh's decisions harden his heart, and his fate are, are tragic, to be sure. We don't want to be like Pharaoh. The difference, though, is that, that Pharaoh knew he was opposed to God. He knew it. He knew he was at war with the Lord. But the Pharisees... Assume that they are good with God. The Pharisees are deluded and misbelieve that they are actually on God's side and doing God's work. Even doing his, his business. They are servants of the Lord. And yet Jesus says, nope, you've missed it. And you're headed for a fate that is worse than Pharaoh. Friend, don't be a hard-hearted person this morning. If you have misunderstood the gospel and, and, and misunderstood Jesus and everything that I've said to you this morning already about who Jesus is and, and how to be saved, if all of that like irks you and it is troubling your soul today, understand that you may be misunderstanding Jesus. Or I'm wrong and I need correction. Um, I, I may be wrong. I don't think I am. <laughs> oh, praise God. Thank you. Listen, don't miss Jesus today. 
Don't miss the gospel today. And don't harden your heart against it. Wrong-hearted people wrongly ask for proof that they have no intention of ever believing. And hard-hearted people who continue to walk in unrepentance of their sin are headed for a hellish future. These are truths that Jesus tells the Pharisees and his word continues to communicate to us today. But there's good news. In verses 46 through 50, we see that wholehearted followers of Jesus are not headed for hell are not wrongly asking for proof. Instead, wholehearted followers of Jesus are wholly saved. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Completely saved. Let's look at these verses together. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Wholehearted followers of Jesus are wholly saved. How do we know this? One, because they answer a radical call to follow Jesus. Wholehearted followers of Jesus answer a radical call to follow him. Look at verse 46, right there. Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers, four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, all show up outside of the synagogue asking to speak to Jesus. The nature of their agenda to speak with Jesus is, I think, likely that they're upset with his ministry and how he is carrying it out. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 say this. And Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again, uh, so many in the house, right, that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. John chapter 7, verse 5, we read there that not even his brothers believed in him. It's, It's entirely possible that at this time, Joseph, Jesus' adopted earthly father, is dead and gone, and Jesus, being the oldest in the family, would have had, uh, would have been expected to provide for his family in a certain way, right? And we know that he was by trade a carpenter. And so here he is in the synagogue arguing with these Pharisees and these scribes. And mom and the brothers show up and they're going, hey, listen, Jesus, this is all well and good, but um, we need you to come home to make some tables and to fix some chairs and do, do some other things so that we could put food on the table, man. And you're out here preaching and starting fights. And engaging with these these Pharisees. We need you at home. Don't you know you have responsibilities? And Jesus gently rebukes even his own mother and his brothers at this point and at this potential accusation. Now look, Jesus is not denying his family. Jesus is not forsaking his family. He is not disrespecting or being unloving to his family. We know, that Je- we know the, G- the love that Jesus has for his mother at the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus on the cross says to his mother and the only disciple that has not yet left him, the disciple John, mother behold your son, son behold your mother. Right? He loves Mary and cares for her and is ensuring, even at the, the moments before his death, ensuring that she will be cared for. But here at this point, when they're coming to try to dissuade him from ministry, he, he makes a point here that stands to make a stark contrast between the importance of physical relationships and spiritual relationships. We do well to be reminded at this point of the radical call to discipleship that Jesus has already made in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 8, verse 22. Jesus says to the man who says, I'll follow you, just first let me go bury my own father, with the assumption that his father's not even dead yet. Jesus says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. You follow me. And when your dad dies, let other people bury him. 
Matthew chapter 10, verses 36, 37 and following. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The radical call, this radical call to discipleship, to forsake everything else for the love of Jesus, stands in contrast, stark contrast, to the skepticism and the condemnation that the Pharisees and the scribes uh, lay upon Jesus. And this indicates that, that one, this call to radical discipleship, the, the real, true follower of Jesus, a wholehearted follower of Jesus, is one who has traded spiritual occupancy by self and sin and selfishness for being filled with the love of the Son. Radical discipleship, wholehearted following of Jesus, denies sin and repents from it. It seeks, it is a call and it is a practice of setting aside our disobedience to God and taking up obedience to God in all that He has commanded. Which means even when our families or our friends try to dissuade us, try to to pull us away from our faith or to say, hey, your faith's a little bit too radical for me. It's a little too, too out there. Don't you know you have some things to take care of here? We say, no, no, Christ comes first. His, his call on my life supersedes everything else. And we can look at our mothers and our fathers and our brothers and sisters and, and friends and we can say, I love you. I love you to death. I just love Christ more. And the things you're asking me to do are taking away from my call to follow him. And, and I can't. I can't. On the day you ask me to choose, I'm going to choose him every time. That's the, that's the picture of a wholehearted follower of Jesus. The good news is that those who wholeheartedly submit to Jesus and follow him will enter into the kingdom as the family of God. Amen. Right? Gesturing to his disciples. Jesus says, these are my mother and my brothers. These who have left nets. Right to follow me, who have left their livelihood to follow me. Those who have left their fathers to run the family business, right, to follow me. Those who have left brothers in the field plowing on their own. Those who have left those things to come follow me, those are my brothers and my mother and my sisters. The call to discipleship here is a call to follow Jesus, even if it means forsaking blood kinship that would hinder us from following him. Certainly. If it is the case that Mary and, and Jesus' brothers are trying to dissuade Jesus from his mission at this point, his rebuke to them stands. It is valid. He is right to rebuke them from, uh, from calling him away from the ministry that God uh, ha- has called him to. 